So they kind of reject the Bible. And so we're going to take a look at the truth of that statement. Is the Bible intolerant? But before we get in that, I want to do a little game. Okay, so y- often you come and you come and you listen, right? You just come and you, I, 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 I listen to worship and then I listen to a sermon and then I go home. But not today, okay? Not today. You're not just going to listen to the sermon. Today you're in the thick of it, all right? You're right in the middle of this thing. You are, you are the sermon illustration. How many of you are excited? All right, we're going to do it anyway. Right, this, this is how you grow churches and win friends and influence people. You make them do things they don't want to do, right? All right, so we're going to take a little test. All right, how many of you have ever heard of a Rorschach test? Yeah, yeah, okay, so here we go. We're going to show you an image on the screen. Are you ready, Larry, to put that first image up there? Uh, or is, here it is. I was going to say let's raise our hands and not, and we have children present, so make sure that it's safe. Good job with Stormtrooper, though. I, I see that, too. Uh, okay, who else? What else do you guys see? First thing that comes to mind, what do you see? The helmet. Okay, Darth Vader. Good. That's all basically Star Wars, as everybody sees. What else do you see? A dog. It's like looking at clouds. What else? What else do you see? A gorilla. What else do you see? Anything else? Radio with two mice next to it. A bird clock. With two mice next to it. I feel like we're going to have to talk later, Doug. I have yeah. <laughs> what else do you see, Sandy? A house and a keyhole. Oh, I see the keyhole. Very good. Anybody else see anything different? Janice, you see, what do you see, Janice? Janice, you see a frog. Excellent. All right, you see, everybody sees something different, right? And if you keep staring at it, you see something different again. Now, the reason I'm, I'm talking, wanted to share this with you is because, uh, not because I want to psychoanalyze you right now, although maybe, again, Doug, we need to talk later, because um, that was the wrong answer. No, I'm kidding. Um, the Rorschach test was created in the 1920s, all right, and it was Kind of about the same time as this theater was being built. They were inventing the Rorschach test and building the Pullman uh, Cordova Theater. And uh, it, was, it was a tool that was made to help understand how people's minds are working. And the thing about the Rorschach test is that there is no right answer. None. Or, wait a minute. There's no ran- wrong answer. That's what I was trying to say. Like, there's no right answer. No, there's no wrong answer. The only right answer is the answer you give. Okay? And it is, this, this test really became popular in the 50s, 60s, and 70s as the rise of individualism happened. I mean, if you guys have heard that word thrown around, individualism is this cultural phenomenon where we have more and more moved to uh, individualist beliefs, individualist ideals. We don't think community anymore. We, th- we think about our own families, our own lives, our own selves. And the Rorschach test actually epitomizes that because the only right answer that it gives is the answer that you give. Right? It's the only, an- the only right answer is the answer that you give. And it's important because we're going to be asking this question today, is the Bible intolerant? And we have to be aware, again, of context. Just like with Scripture, when you read a Bible verse, you need to be aware of the context. What is being said around it? What is the whole Bible saying? The same thing is true of a question like, is the Bible intolerant? What is the context of that question? And the context of that question is the individualist society that we live in right now. Another way of saying it is uh, the word, this phrase, my truth. Maybe you've ever heard that say, phrase. My truth. Nobody has ever heard that phrase. Just Tyler. Tyler alone in this room has his truth, and everybody else does not, apparently. 
Come, seriously, come on. Anybody else have heard that phrase? He's like, yes, I've heard it now. You just said it, Jamie. Good job. Okay. So this, this phrase, and even by asking that question, some people may have just gone on edge a little bit, right? You might have just been like, oh, I'm about to be attacked if I like, think that's true. Now, I know that the average person, when they talk about my truth, they're just talking about their experience. They're talking about their pain. They're talking about what they've learned and seen in life. And that, that's, that's the basic thing that they're talking about. But culture has taken it to a really, really far extreme. When you hear the phrase, my truth, what it's talking about is this idea that, you know, it's okay for you to believe what you believe, and I believe what I believe, and we'll all just get along, and my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. And in doing that, they kind of, it, it eliminates truth altogether, because by definition, there, there has to be something that's true. And when we say, look, the definition of truth is that there's something absolute, we get canceled in this culture, right? We've, we've seen it happen. We, we hear it from uh, people all across our culture, and I, this is important because this is, again, this is where we live in. This is, we turn on the television, we watch the Coug game, and, and you're going to hear little things, little quips, little quotes. It's, it's under the undercurrent. If you watch Oprah Winfrey, it's coming out all the time. Now, I'm not anti-Oprah. I'm not canceling Oprah. You guys are like, I like Oprah. I want her to give me a car. You know, she's like, you get a car, and you get a car, and I want a car, too. I'm not anti-Oprah, okay? But Oprah, she uh, said this. And this is how, this is, have you ever heard she's ever said this? There are many ways to what you call God. There couldn't possibly be just one way. And that's because of this idea of individualism. My truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Gandhi actually is the originator of this. You guys remember Gandhi? He died a bunch of years ago, but he's the, the freedom fighter in India. He's a skinny, tiny little man who was super-duper wise and had lots of really great things to say. He's actually one of the originators, the progenerators of this idea of my truth is my truth. And he said this. He says, religions are different roads converging upon the same point. What does it matter that we take different roads so long as we each reach the same goal? That's Gandhi. So the conclusion is that if you insist that your path is right, that there is one truth, there is truth that is true, and there are things that people believe that are not true, then instantly you are intolerant. In fact, culture would even go further to say that you're narcissistic, that you're, you're self-centered, that you can only see yourself. There was a recently an article, uh, well, actually, I met with the article. First, start with the, this guy, Zach Braff. He uh, wrote, a, wrote a book, and he was talking about all the different religions and talking about intolerance. And he's, he said this. He's, he's like, what are the chances of believing in the correct God? Not great. All gods are equally unproven and hypothetical. Trying to obey the rules of any one particular God is a complete gamble. If God was real, it would be absolutely impossible to know the rules. Even if the supposed God told you the rules, it might be lying. And then he says, that this, this quote around here, he says, there are almost 5,000 gods being worshipped by humanity. But don't worry, only yours is right. Only yours is right. So this is how they see people that make ultimate truth claims. And then there was this article by, uh, by a man, Terrace Thomas, who was a Christian all growing up, and he left the faith. And this is what he says. He says, it's spiritually narcissistic to believe that a single religion is applicable for 7 billion people. It is, it is spiritually narcissistic to believe that it is your God-ordained responsibility to pro project your beliefs upon others in the hopes of conversion. And it is spiritually narcissistic to believe that you are a part of a group of like-minded individuals 
who hold the key to humanity's salvation. Now, I understand. They're probably coming from a fairly good place. They really just do want to all of us to get along in the world. And they do want us all to be able to be happy and stop fighting and wars to end and all of those things. And it's coming from this good place of some really deep and important questions, like the seven billion people question. It's like this is a world of seven billion people of many different faiths. Does the Bible really teach that two-thirds of all the world, the two-thirds of people in the world do not believe in Christianity, do not believe in the truth of Jesus Christ? Is it true, then, that God would send all of those people to hell, that they are wrong in their approach to faith, and that they are wrong in the God that they believe? And there's an even biblical application to that, because some of those two-thirds of people in the world are people that I dearly love. For me. Okay, this is like, this is serious business. That question, like, are these people that I love that have rejected Christianity, are they going to hell? Is God just going to simply say, oh, you didn't believe, so you're out of here? It's a big and emotional question. And what about the folks uh, like that, that are at the fair handing out tracts? You guys saw the people, right? You go to the fair, and you're, you're getting all the free stuff. Your kids, they want all the candy, so you're going from place to place, and you come home with like, Three Gideon's Bibles and a whole bunch of tracks. You're like, where did these come from? You know, and the, the tracks are these little pamphlets about Jesus being the only way to heaven. Now, that's, that's good. It's well and good. But what if those people handing out those tracks were actually born in Thailand, right? In Thailand, 90% of the population is Buddhist. Would those be people be handing out Buddhist tracks? How do we reconcile this? this? The unfairness of where you're born when it comes to the intolerance of the Bible and being one way to God. How can Christianity be the claim to be the only way when there are so many religions in the world and some of them even predate Christianity? How are we supposed to deal with that? And if Jesus really is the only way, what about all those people who have never heard about him? What about that island off the coast of India that no modern human has ever touched? Right? They, they come out to the shore and they throw their spears at, at the angry gods that are airplanes flying over. What about those people? That there's no chance. So Gandhi and Oprah and the culture would kind of have you believe in, in this model, this, this picture. We're going to put a picture up here of a mountain. And it says this. Like, it's like There's one mountain, and God is the top of the mountain, and there are all these different routes to get to God. I mean, if you've ever, this is like, it's like you look at Mount McKinley, you look at Mount Everest. People take all sorts of different routes, but the whole point is to get to God. So there's all these different ways. This is how we'd have so Christianity. You're going to come this way, and it's going through Jesus. And then you've got it, you know, Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism. They're taking their paths over that way. And secular enlightenment, secular humanism, agnosticism. It's, it's coming up the middle some different way. But in the end, there's all these paths, but they all lead to God. And let me admit to you right this second that in the bottom, deepest part of my being, I wish this were true. Really do. I mean, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't that just be the best? If if none of us had to be right, that we could all like, you know, we're just we're just seeking God and whatever path, wherever we're born, whatever goes on, whatever religious beliefs come our way, we we can adopt and accept them and, and they're gonna lead us and help us get to God. I really do wish that's true. And it helps me resolve a lot of those questions that I have about this idea about God being the only way. But the big problem comes in when we start reading the Bible. Oh, dirty Bible. 
Oh, you get it, it. It messes with you sometimes, right? It's not just the hard passages, but stuff that you don't want to believe that comes up. It says this, John 14, 6, and it's not just the Bible saying this. It's Jesus saying it, okay? So it's not just some random guy in the Old Testament. This is the individual that we all history seems to point to and the whole Bible seems to point to. And who is God in the flesh? It's God come down and he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Man, that sounds so intolerant. And then he gets worse. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. How dare you, Jesus? Messing with me. Messing with my culture. Messing with what I want. In the early church, they, they affirmed it. Acts 4.12, it says this salvation is found in no one else. Jerks. For there is no other name under heaven and earth given to mankind by which we must be saved. John, 1 John 5.12, whoever has the Son has life. We like that part, right? It sounds great. Whoever has got the Son has life. You got Jesus, you got life. But then he flips the coin over. And he says this, whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Whoever does not have the Son of God, Jesus, does not have life. The Bible is telling us that there is no other way to the mountaintop. Shoot. There is no other way to the mountaintop. And we've got a big problem here because culture is screaming at us that that can't possibly be true. But Jesus and the Bible tell us, no, in fact, there is only one way to God. So how do we reconcile these two things in the culture? How do we read scripture when at the, the deepest part of us really just wants everybody to be able to reach God? How do we handle with this? How do we handle this intolerance? And how do we go through life like not coming off as this huge jerk, you know, because Christians aren't supposed to be jerks. Being a jerk is not a fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are fruits of the Spirit. So how do we operate out of those in a culture that's saying, oh, we, we can all just get there however we're going to get there, whenever we're going to get there? Let's tackle a few things, okay? I'm going to tackle a couple of these things, and then I'm going to give you some orthodox belief that we can learn to hold generously, okay? That we can hold generously and help us love other people. So let's tackle this idea of all paths lead to God, Okay? And I want you to hear this, and you can say this with me. Ready? Not all paths lead to the same destination. Okay? Not all paths lead to the same destination. It's a positive impulse, I think, to try to look for commonalities between religions and between people. I think that's a good thing. I think it's like the first thing we have to do anytime you're like in conflict resolution, you start looking for, for commonalities, right? So people look at the world religions, people that study religions, and they see that they teach some very similar things. And we have a lot of common ground. Great. Just because we think differently does not make us enemies. Here's some commonalities. Oh, boy. Okay, good. I have two blank pages in the middle of my sermon. That scared me. I was like, what are the commonalities? I can't remember. <laughs> it's gone. There, there are none. No, there are some actually really big ones, and I'm going to put them up on the screen here. It's the next slide. Here we go. Christianity says this, do to others what you would have them do to you, Luke 6.31. Confucianism, Confucianism, it's Confucianism to say Confucianism, I got to tell you. Uh, do not, do not do to others what you do not want them to do to you. Whoa, almost the same thing. It's just kind of said a little differently. Hinduism, this is the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause pain if done to you. Same thing, right? 
Jesus seems to be copying these other guys. And we got Buddhism down here. It says, hurt not others in ways that you yourself would find hurtful. So you look at the teachings of all the world religions, and you're going to find some commonalities, some similarities. And they're surprising when they come up. You're like, wow. Islam, especially, as you read the Quran, you start hearing things that, man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And there's a reason for that. It's because monks in the 6th century helped the Muslims write down the Quran. It was all verbal before that. And so they started writing it down, and the monks are like, well, what about this? And what about this? And they're like, they're sneaking Christianity into Islam. So these things, they sound very, very similar. However, that's like down low on the mountain. I mean, if we're back on that mountain thing, you know, we're down low, the paths seem to go similar places. But the higher you head up into them, the more you find out that these paths are not going the same place. So let's look at some other examples. And I, I want to take th three big questions, okay? We'll just, you could ask a lot of different questions, but these three big questions really show how the different religions diverge from one another. And the three big questions are this, like, who is God? Who is Jesus? And we ask Jesus just because we're, we're Christians. This is a Christian culture that we're still living in, temporarily at least, and we're a Christian church. And so we're asking, what do they think about Jesus? And lastly, about the afterlife. You know, what happens after we die? So we ask those three big questions, and it's going to show you the big, big differences between the religions. So here you go, Hinduism. This is one of the oldest world religions. This, this predates Christianity by a couple of thousand years. It is very, very old. And it says, he says this, so you ask, who is God? To Hindus, there are many gods. There's thousands of them. And maybe there is one god behind the gods, okay? Like there's thousands of gods at the mountaintop, and maybe there's just one big god that kind of controls them all, but we can't know him. But we're going to call that god Brahman, and he is the ultimate. And actually what we're doing is our lives are being lived in such a way that we become one of those gods. We worship and serve those gods, and then someday we're going to become one of them. Now, who is Jesus for the Hindus? Jesus is a wise teacher. He could even be one of those gods at the top of the mountain, but he's not the ultimate god. He, he made it to the mountaintop, and he became the God, but he is not the way to God. The way to God, really, and this has to do with your afterlife. And what do they think about the afterlife is reincarnation. It's like the worst possible, I think, the worst possible version of an afterlife. You just do do-over. Like, you know, do-over sound good in principle, but you try living like 80, 95 years and then have to do it again. And it was hard the first time, and you got to get it right the second time around. And what you're doing is you're working out karma, right? Karma is that idea of like, you do something, put something bad out in the world, and so bad things come back to you. You do something good in the world, something comes back to you. So you might, you might be reincarnated as a fly or a flea, and you get squashed, and you have like a three-day lifespan because you were paramecium or something. And you work your way up, and maybe you're a cow or a bull. That's why they're, that's why they're vegetarians, Hindus. You know, human, and then you work your way up in the caste caste system of humanity. So you start in the poverty and the poor and, you know, the destitute and living on the streets, and you work your way up into a house, and you work your way up into a business, and you work your way up into the elite of society, and then after the elite of society, then maybe you graduate and become a god. That's their idea of, of the, the, mount, the, the end, the afterlife. You just do it over and over and over again until you reach the mountaintop and become a god. Islam. Islam arose around 650 AD. It's less than 1,500 years old, which is kind of amazing for how old it seems as a religion. Their version of God is this, this God, Allah. Okay, it's very, very different than Hinduism. The Mus uh, Muslims, Islam believes in one God, just like we do. It's, a, it's a monotheism. And, but at this mountaintop, 
Allah sits, and he is distinctly different from the one God of Judaism or the one God of Christianity. And it's a distinction that Islam is very keen to make. It's not just everybody else that's making this distinction. Islam is saying, look, the God of Christians and the God of Jews, that is not the same God that we worship. Allah is very, very different. Jesus to the Muslims, he is a prophet. He's not God. He's not divine in any sense. Um, and getting to the afterlife doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. Jesus is just a prophet that talks about the good things that Allah says. Because Islam is all about doing good works, doing good things, doing good deeds. So they look at Jesus and they see all the miracles. They see all the good teaching. They say, well, he's clearly a prophet, clearly a good man. The afterlife for Islam is paradise. It's a, there's a place of punishment and there's a place of reward. And the afterlife is all about looking at you and weighing all the good and all the bad that you ever did. And then Allah decides whether you get the reward, which for, for men in Islam is like 70 virgins. I don't even know. That doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like heaven for the virgins. Just saying. Uh, the <laughs> doesn't sound good. And then, the, the or you get the other side, right? That's the afterlife for them. It's all based on works. It's all based on good or bad. And you go to heaven or you go to hell. Our paths do not end up at the same place at all. Different gods, different end goals, different end games. The paths, the, the mountaintop is totally different for all of them. Christianity is also not the only world religion to make ultimate truth claims. Every single one of these religions do. So when the world says you can't have one way be true and one way be not be true, all of our truths are equal, well, then they make liars of everybody, okay? Either one religion is true and all the rest are false, or all of them are false. Those are your only options when it comes to truth claims. That's really hard to take. So not all paths lead to the same place. But secondly, I think the thing that we all get wrong, and this is where most major world religions are really, really different than Christianity. Christians don't believe that we are making a pathway to God. We believe that it's the other way around, that God is making a pathway to us, that God is coming to us. In every major world religion, it's all about what you have to do to get to the afterlife, what good deeds, what, what karma you have to heal, what, whatever, to make your way up this pathway and get yourself up the mountain to God. But in Christianity, it is completely flipped, although many Christians get this wrong. We get it wrong in practice. God came to us. The world religions would say this. Hindu Vita said, truth is one, but the sages speak it of it in many different ways. Buddha says, my teachings point the way to the attainment of truth. Muhammad said, the truth has been revealed to me. But Jesus says this. He says, I am the truth. Do you get that? World religions outside of Christianity say, this is the path to the mountaintop. This is the path to the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. It sets him apart from every other world religion. It's not just his claim that he's God. It's his claim to be the truth. And he didn't come just to reveal the truth or guide you to the truth. He came to seek and save, to find that which was lost. The mountaintop came down to the bottom to get the people at the bottom to take them back to the top. He's not just pointing away. He is the way. The mountaintop is coming to us, seeking us. Christianity is the only world religion where you don't earn your salvation. You just receive it in faith. 
Christianity does not teach us, as the, the, the man who left the faith suggests, that, that we have this narcissistic spiritual belief that we hold the keys to salvation. Christianity does not teach that. What it teaches is the key to salvation holds us. Boy, we get that backwards sometimes, right? We think, well, I've got the truth. I've got it. No, 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 no. The truth has you. The key to salvation has you. It's come to you. In Luke 15, there are three stories that illustrate this. And I'm going to read the first one, and then I'll just kind of say the other two. But the first one is this, Luke 15, chapter, or verse, chapter 15, verse 1. It says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Hear that? The mountaintop came to them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness to go after the one that is lost until he found it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home to the mountaintop, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner, one person at the bottom of the mountain coming, being carried to the mountaintop by God, there'd be more rejoicing in heaven over that than the 99 righteous people who needed no repentance. The other two stories, the next parable is the parable of the lost coin about a woman who loses a coin as a day's wages, and she tears her house apart until she finds it. And when she finds it, she celebrates and rejoices. Then there's a story about a father whose son leaves him, takes his inheritance and runs away and squanders it. And the father stands on the edge of the hill looking out, wondering, when is the son coming back home? And when he comes home, he celebrates and he rejoices, and it's a party, and it's so wonderful. These three stories taken together show how this is flipped from every other world religion. We're not making our way to the mountaintop. The mountaintop is coming to us. It's seeking us. He's watching for us. He's looking for us, and he is carrying us back home. It's the same story through the whole scripture. These three stories, Jesus is basically just retelling the Genesis story. He's just retelling the story of the first five books of the Bible. He's retelling the story of the whole Old Testament. Just think about this. You got, you got Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, God has been working behind his scenes of his life the whole time. He's like, he's a slave, he's in prison, he's being treated horribly. But he's been, all these things have been happening to him. And in the end, he gets elevated to a high position and his brothers come and it says this. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The mountaintop was coming down to me through all of this. And the mountaintop has now come down to you so that you might be saved. You got Moses. You got God sees the suffering and slavery of thousands of Jews. And so what happens? He sends Moses to be the savior for them, to lead them out. And then God himself comes down with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, it says. And there's fire and there's all these big prophecies and big miracles that happen. And he rescues the people. God comes to them. They didn't come to God. You can go over and over again. You have Jesus saying that, Look, the guidelines that you have for slavery do not solve slavery. We need, to, we need a liberator and we need a healer. Not just slavery in terms of human bondage, but the bondage of sin and death. We need a liberator. We need somebody to rescue us. So God sends himself. Even now, God is sending people out into the world to do the seeking. He's asking us to come off the mountaintop and come down and rescue those who are lost. 
That's the invitation of Scripture. So when culture looks at the Bible and says it's intolerant, it says there's only one way to God, well, from their perspective, they're right. However, what they get backwards is that the one way comes to them. It's not them having to get to it. It's not them having to adopt some other culture, some other religion. All they have to do is say yes, because God is the one that brings them to the mountaintop. So how do we navigate a world that says we're intolerant? How do we live in a world that says Christianity is an intolerant religion while holding on to the truth of Scripture, while not pitching out these parts of the Bible that are honestly a little difficult to swallow in an individualist society like we live in today? How do we do it? Well, I want to pose to you the idea of having a generous orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, we talked about last week, the right way to believe, right? We, we looked at that about the universe, and we talked, like, like here, here's these points about the universe. Did it have a beginning and an end? Did it, was it created? Was it caused? And was it personal, right? We asked those three things. I mean, if, if, it, if the belief system says that, then it actually fits within orthodoxy. Well, these are some orthodox beliefs, beliefs that help us hold on to the truth of Scripture while loving people well in our culture. And the first one is this. I believe that God desperately loves people. You guys want to say that with me? I believe God desperately loves people. And evidenced over and over and over in Scripture. You don't have to read very much to start seeing it. But the more you read, the more you see that though God brings judgment, and we're going to talk more about that later, the more, even though God brings judgment, he is truly loving and gracious, slow to anger, forgiving, and abounding in steadfast love. And that word steadfast means he's pursuing, he's chasing, he's, he's persistent, he's insistent, he is incessant. I mean, you could keep adding words to it. That it's, it's not just this, oh, it's a nice love. No, it, it's just like love. This is, this is chase you down kind of love. This is, this is crazy love that God has for people. The Bible teaches that God loves the world, and he's not just meaning the systems of the world. He's not just saying the planet. He's saying people, and specific people, not to, the, not to the leaving out of other people, but all people, all people specifically. By name, he knows your name. God loves people, and his love is not held inside. It's not the love that we sometimes get from parents who don't know how to express it or loved ones who don't know how to show it, who say, I love you with a straight face, or who never show that they love you with actions. And God, God expresses his love to us. He's willing to do just about anything other than violate his own character to express his love to you, even to the point of dying, to make a path from heaven to earth possible so that no one would face judgment. The second truth is this. I believe that God is infinitely more just and infinitely more loving than I can ever imagine. Sometimes it's hard to reconcile my questions about God and how he will judge people. Like, I, I have a hard time with that. Like, this is a good person. How is God going to judge that person? Why would he do that? Especially who people who come to different conclusions and different ways of thinking. People who were born in different cultures and different circumstances, who didn't have the privileges I had, who didn't have the gift of growing up in a church and hearing the word of God daily, or parents who prayed. How can God really judge people for not having a faith in him when 
They'd not, all they've seen is hatefulness, prejudice, anger, power-mongering. How can God be so unfair to people born in the mountains of India in 400 B.C.? In the face of those questions, I hold on to this orthodox belief that no one will be judged unfairly and that God is loving. God is just to the point of being justice itself. Like, it's hard to describe how just somebody is, right? We're, we're a little just, we're kind of just, we follow the laws or whatever, but God is beyond all of that. It's hard to get our brain around, and if you can get your brain around this, you're not actually, you don't have your brain around God, because this, that's the whole point. God is bigger than what you can get your brain around. So it's just going to have to sit with that mystery today, that God is so just that we can't even fathom how, that, how just he is, and that should absolutely terrify every single one of us. But on the other hand, God is also love. Scripture indicates that God's justice will come to all of us, but there's this evidence that says that, that God is going to judge people based on the, the response to the evidence that they had, whether it was the evidence of creation or the evidence of a missionary or the evidence of the Bible or evidence of whatever the evidence is. We're going to be judged based on that. And in the end, God's love is going to be coming into play in equal proportion to his justice. God is the very definition of love at its deepest and most unconditional. It's not love based on performance. It's not love based on looks. It's not love based on sex. It's not love based on any of these things. It is love that is unconditional and complete, and it is rested on every individual that will stand before him someday. Scripture teaches that in Christ, justice and mercy kiss they become united and whole and one. One part does not trump the other, but they are presented in full and together. And because God is so just and because God is so loving, because he is infinitely more just than I can imagine and infinitely more loving than I can imagine, I believe that God is trustworthy and we can trust his love for people and we can trust him to judge us and everyone else fairly. Thirdly, the third orthodox belief that we can hold on to, I believe that God wants others to know him through Jesus. People have been given a free will. They can choose what they want to choose. God doesn't want robots. That's like the last thing that he wants. He takes pleasure in the fact that people disagree with him. He gave them free will so that they could. He takes pleasure in seeing us live to our full capacity as human beings. And yet he hopes, he longs, he seeks, he pursues, he, he talks to, he woos people so that they would come to him. God hasn't left it to chance that others would hear about his love. Instead, he actively pursues. Like the man said, if there is a God, it would be impossible to know the rules by which we would have to follow to, to, to love this God. And God says, you're right, <laughs> it would be impossible. So let me just show you who I am. And he sends Jesus. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the divine, you've seen God. If you've seen how I love people, you see how God loves. But we're still left with the choice. We have a clear picture, and we have this God who is pursuing us, who says that his love, and I, I really like this statement, that it's not just that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but it's that love 
is the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is love. He is the very picture of God. Love is the way, the truth, and the life. Last week we said, we made this statement in terms of orthodoxy. We said God can do anything. You still believe that? God can do anything. This week I would say that God will go to any length to get to you, to get to the people who are lost, the people who are not in, in orthodoxy, who do not believe in Jesus the one way. He will go to any length to find them. He hasn't left it to chance that others would m- meet Jesus. He sent you. And everybody said, oh, snap. Oh, snap. Now that the mountain has come down to you, God sends you out to say, look, the mountain has come down. The mountaintop has come down. It's been made, the mountains have been made low. The valleys have been raised up and the way has been made straight. You can come to God and it doesn't take any work on your behalf. You don't have to earn it. You can't serve for it. You can't achieve it. You can't do karma and get it. It's just faith. You just receive it. I have found it to be true for myself that because I don't want people to think that I'm intolerant, I tend to stay kind of quiet about my faith sometimes in contexts, cultural contexts. Well, I found it to be true about myself that I tend to stay quiet and a wall fly in general because I'm an introvert, but that's beside the point. I mean, these are the same place. Yeah, I go to party. I don't say anything. I just stay in the corner. We'll talk about floaters and campers some other time. It's a great concept for parties. It's just, anyway, rabbit trail. <laughs> the point is that I find in myself, because I'm introverted, because I'm quiet, because I'm a nine, and I don't want people to think badly of me, and I want everybody to just love and get along, I tend not to go to this whole one-way-to-Jesus sort of place. And I have alternately, like, glorified people who go handing out tracts and stand on street corners and wave, you know, Jesus loves you signs, and alternately villainized them because they're just making people mad, right? But what I have found that it's not just in the speaking of it, because that's not what God did, right? God didn't just, from the mountaintop, say, hey, this is the path, this is the way. He came down and he loved people. He sat with the woman at the well, right? The woman who was basically a prostitute and an adulterer. You know, bring your husband back. I don't have a husband. No, you've had five of them, and the guy you're living with right now is, you know, she's just like, I'm here anyway. And if you, if you want this living water, it can be yours. All you have to do is ask. He comes down and touches the leper. He seeks out the man at the pool of Siloam who's, who was paralyzed for his, most of his life and he's just laying in helplessness and hopelessness waiting for water to stir so that maybe he could get this miracle healing magical power water and he comes to him he's like, you've been sitting here your whole life. Has it ever worked for you? Has it ever worked for anybody? No. Why are you still here? Let's get up and walk. The mountaintop comes down and it comes down through us. And it's not being on the street corner, and it's not just handing out tracts, and it's not just handing out Bibles, but it's being love to one another. It's bringing meals to your next-door neighbor when they've had a baby and their whole life is just upside down, and they can't think about eating. It's, it's a kind word to somebody who is in pain. It's showing up at the hospital. It's praying for people. It's being a good friend. 
for showing the love of God in all of these things. And when there's an opportunity, then we speak. Then we speak. I heard this story this last week, and I don't usually tell stories uh, that I, like, read in a, a thing because I kind of find that it's a little contrived. You know, I don't want to ha- – these, these sermons especially are so personal. Like, uh, you, many of you are just absolutely locked on with this stuff because it's hard. But this story, I, did, I, I, re- I read it, and I was like, oh, I have, to, I have to use this. And it's a story about this man who was a boss, and he owned his company, and he had an employee. Um, and this employee was, like, one of his highest employees, and he was responsible for having – a meeting that day with some other clients to pitch a product to them. And this was like, you know, he's his, he's his best. He's his ace in the hole. He's like, if this guy shows up and he does this thing, it's all going to be great and we're going to make all this money. And so meeting time comes, 1030, and uh, he's not there. He's like, well, where is he? And he starts, like, texting him. He doesn't get any response. Text him again, doesn't get any response. After the, the meeting is supposed to have ended and the guy never showed up, now he's beyond, he's angry, but he's also beyond worried because this guy was also his friend. And so he's like, if he didn't show up, something horrible has happened. He he's keeps texting and texting and not getting a response. And finally, he just, I, I got to call him and maybe it'll ring and he'll answer. So he calls and now the, the phone picks up instantly. And he goes, hello? And he's like, who is this? And the, this little boy says, Scotty. And he says, Scotty, is your, is your daddy home? And he says, No. And the man's like, what is going on? And all of a sudden, he hears, like, sirens. He's like, he hears sirens. He's like, what's that? He goes, it's police officers. He goes, Scotty, is your mommy home? No. And then he hears fire trucks. He's like, firemen, firemen, firemen. And he goes, the boy is excited. And then he all of a sudden, he hears a helicopter truck, 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 coming over the top of him. And, and, and uh, the man on the phone, the boss says, what, what is that, Scotty? What's that sound? What's that sound? He says, helicopter. Helicopter's landing. This is exciting. Helicopter's landing. He goes, why is, the heli- why is there a helicopter and there's fire trucks and police? And the little boy says, they're looking for me. They're looking for me. When I heard that story, I just thought, what would it be like? to feel like that little boy. So excited that somebody was looking for them. So excited that somebody loved them enough. So ex- and that's, that could be the experience of the world around us. It could be experience of our next door neighbors and the people across the street. It could be experience of people in this room with one another that we would seek each other out, seek to love one another, Seek to express the fruits of the Spirit of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control to each other and to everybody around us because this is what God did. He came down from the mountaintop and he landed on the front lawn. And rather than be upset that Scripture says that there is only one way to God, when people encounter that one way, they should experience it as good rather than intolerant. I said last week, the greatest threat to the church is not outside of us, but it's within us. It's intolerant Christians who make God look intolerant. It's people who are afraid to love others who are not like them and to treat them well and to respect their beliefs and not call them idiots or losers or wrong. It's people who are 
sacrificially loving one another, giving their whole selves and their whole heart to other people. It's people who take the hard route down the mountain to get into people's lives rather than the easy route of preaching it from up front like I do. This is the invitation of God. This is the intolerance of Scripture that makes God fabulously tolerant, that makes God fabulously loving, and it's what he's famous for. My hope is that we'll make him famous like that again. My hope is that your life would lead to that sort of fame for God. So that's my closing question today. The thing about this series is it's really hard to come up with a closing question because there are 50 of them, right? There's so many of them. I don't know what your closing question is. But your closing question is, how does my faith make me intolerant toward other people? Does it really express God's goodness and love? Does it really express his mercy? Or am I trying to be the judge? Is it I need to receive the love of God like that little boy with the helicopter on the front lawn? I need to restore the joy of my salvation. That's what that first song was this morning. If you were late, you missed it. We sang a, a song that is all about the joy of our salvation. I, I just I thank God. It is just this celebration of thanking God. Have you lost the joy of your salvation? Have you forgot the wonder that God came down the mountain for you? Or maybe you didn't know. And you need to receive God this morning. We're going to take a minute of silence. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit speak to you what the Holy Spirit needs to speak to you. Spirit, we welcome you. We open ourselves to you. And in this moment, we lay down our need for approval. We laid out our need for security in this space. We laid down our need for provisions so that we can have open hands to receive just what you want to bring to us. Spirit, speak, and we will listen. <laughs>